0: This is the Monroeville Christian Church podcast, where you can find sermons, Bible studies, and other biblical content produced by Monroeville Christian Church. My name is Covey Wise. I'm one of the preachers at Monroeville Christian Church, and we're committed to teaching, training, and transforming lives for Christ, and we invite you to grow with us. To see everyone here today, I want to uh, give a big thank you to the IDES crew for coming yesterday. Let's give uh, Jody and Ryan and um, the people from IDES and all those who showed up yesterday. We had over a hundred people here from Keystone Christian Church and uh, Homeville Christian Church and Monroeville. A A lot of folks from here came. We packed over 40,000 just over 40,000 meals for disaster relief yesterday and so it was a really neat encouraging time a a great day and I just want to thank you for all of your effort and um, this last couple of weeks uh, we've had four baptisms and so uh, praise God for that that those individuals have made that that decision to be converted to be added to the kingdom And we want to continue to encourage that. If you yourself have questions about what it means to to be a Christian, don't delay. Study the Word. Look at what the Scripture has to say and be obedient to the commands of Christ. Today we're going to continue our Miracles of Christ series. Each week uh, we've been looking at a different miracle. Today we're going to be in John chapter 9. If you have your Bible, want to turn there. But each week, I like to read what John wrote to explain why he wrote down the miracles that he recorded in his gospel. And I think this is ultimately why all the gospel writers probably gave their testimony of Christ's miracles. But John tells us specifically in John chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these... The, the ones that John wrote down specifically, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And So this morning we're going to, to look at John chapter 9. And there, there's an interesting scene in this chapter because it's, it's almost like uh, reading a book where there's a, a plot within a plot. Maybe you've seen movies where there's multiple storylines going on or or an action causes another thing to happen and they they coincide. And so our account is a text of this type of scene where there's a cause and an effect. Jesus gives sight to this blind man who was born blind. And it's amazing and miraculous. But this action brings about another scene which reveals a deeper spiritual ailment that can be present in the heart of men. Now, we're, we're, not so sh- we're not sure how long it has been since the events recorded in John chapter 8. But John and his gospel usually isn't as concerned with chronology or the amount of time that passes between events. In fact, a lot of the book of John, toward the end of the book, covers just the last week of the life of Jesus. But it's interesting, recently I read that, that John's account is more concerned, he's more concerned with the conversations. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you can see that, in fact, about 40% of the verses in the Gospel of John are attributed directly to conversations between people. And compared to the other Gospels, they're only about 20%. And so John, he, he wants us to, to really see the heart of the matter. What's going on between those involved? What are they thinking? What did Jesus think about what they were thinking? And so we're going to begin by reading the first five verses of John chapter 9. It says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So there's two things to notice from these first few verses. And the first thing is that he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. Jesus saw people we've talked about this as we're going through the, these miracles. Jesus saw people like no one else could see people. And he saw people how we typically don't see people. Now this doesn't mean that he merely saw the man's blindness. This doesn't mean that he saw a poor man with no apparent profession. He, he saw a precious soul that's made in the image and likeness of God. And he expects us to see people. That way. We may ask the question why was this man blind? Why are some people born with physical difficulty, physical handicaps, and others are not? And we have those same kind of questions today, but this miracle helps us understand why. The man's condition, along with the fact that Christ noticed him, caused the disciples to ask a question. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it's a, it's a strange question, but we have to understand in, in Jewish traditional belief that babies, they, they thought that babies had intelligence before they were born and therefore had the ability to sin. Now, this is, of course, doctrinally false as a, a little child doesn't understand sin. A little child can't believe. But they had this traditional idea. And so they're asking, what happened in the womb to cause this man to sin? Or did his parents sin? And that, that he's, he's being punished for the sin of his father. And so they had come to these false conclusions based on their traditions. That the man was blind because either he had sinned or the parents had sinned. And what the disciples thought was that this man was being directly punished for his sin or for the sin of the parents. Now, John has just finished writing in John chapter 8, in verse 12, the words of Jesus when he said, I am the light of the world. Now, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verse 5 in our text tells us Jesus again calls himself the light of the world. It's no coincidence that here in chapter 9, John chooses to focus on a miracle which introduces a blind man to light for the very first time in his life. We have no idea exactly how long he's been blind. Why did Christ choose him? How did did they know he had been blind from birth? Had the man been listening and following Jesus, hoping the master would notice him? More than likely, he's like other handicapped individuals in the New Testament that we read about who were sitting there begging, were told that he was a beggar later on in the text. Maybe he was waiting by the temple for people to pass and collect something from them. Maybe he stood at the gates of the city waiting for someone to just to help him out. It is possible Jesus and his disciples passed him by many times, over and over, and they saw this man begging, born blind, We do know that our text says that he is of age, which we'll read in a little bit. In Jewish culture, this meant that he was probably at least 30 years old. Because according to their culture, a man was on his own at that time. He no longer had to go to his father for approval. And so he's probably been blind now for at least three decades or more. So why now? Why choose this time? Why this day, this place? To heal him. And we can almost see the scene. Jesus walking along and his disciples listening to his teaching. Jesus sees the man and he chooses to pause for a moment, wondering whether the disciples are going to notice him too. We can maybe picture him standing, and the man's maybe behind him, leaning up against a wall. And Jesus is teaching his disciples something, and he looks over and says. He sees the blind man. Maybe he stares at him for a few moments, wondering if his disciples will notice the man, that they will see the man like he sees them. And then they ask that question who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, the second thing to notice is that through this man's weakness, God is glorified. Jesus settles the matter quickly by stating neither this man nor his parents sinned and so he he dispels all the tradition, he dispels all the rumor and he said, "Nope. He's God. He knows. He knows the man. He knows the parents." And he says, "No. Nothing no one sinned for this man to be this way." But he does say the reason that he is blind The reason he was born into a blind state, the very reason the man has suffered now with this for decades in a way that most of us will never experience. The reason why was not as a consequence of his sin or his parents' sin. He is blind so that this miracle could take place on this day at this time so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just now fathom that thought. Imagine being born blind, never being able to see before in your entire life. And you've lived that way for decades and decades. And maybe this man has asked himself those same kind of questions. Why was I born this way? Why was I born blind? Why can't I have a normal job? Why can't I have a family? Why can't I have children? Why can't... Why can't I do the things that normal people can do? And he's suffering in this situation. And Christ tells his disciples, this man was born that way. So that today, at this time, as he looks over and he sees, the man sees what he truly needs. That the works of God will be displayed in that man. See, the disciples, like many today, like even like us, were blaming this man's condition on things that they had assumed he had done or things that his parents had done. In their minds, that that was why he was blind. They didn't have compassion on the man to really see him like Jesus did, to see past his infirmity, to see past their assumptions and past the tradition, to see the truth. And we make those same kind of assumptions sometimes, don't we? We see those who suffer as victims of crimes and abuse and disease and disaster. And sometimes it's even their own fault that they're in those situations. Sometimes not. But we're tempted, aren't we, to assume, to say that, well, they they deserve what they get. They made their bed, just let them sleep in it. And we fail to have compassion on people. To see the works of God that might be done through them. We, we say they hang around the wrong people. Their family is known for living wild and their lifestyle is ungodly. They deserve what's coming to them. And we have little or no compassion. We focus only on what they are and we never see what they be, can become. We need to be more like Jesus. And see people for what they can become in Him. And that takes a lot of patience, a lot of grace and mercy and long-suffering. And when we make these kind of assumptions, we do so out of pride and selfishness. Not considering the spiritual needs of each precious soul. And all the while, as we are being prideful in that way, we forget that our own righteousness is nothing more than garbage without Christ. When our assumptions and our opinions or our traditions supersede the truth, we are acting just like the Pharisees in this text today. And the disciples needed to learn from this account that when we are weak, He's made strong in our weakness, in our infirmity, in our, our difficulty, when we humble ourselves, we seek God and realize we need Him, that's when He can use us. Paul expressed this kind of thinking in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, he says, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, in order to keep Paul from being prideful, which he, he had much to be prideful for, didn't he? He, he could boast about many a thing. But Paul said, "...to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, please take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." There's that same kind of thought with this man. Jesus said, through this man, through his difficulty, the works of God are going to be displayed today. Paul realized when he heard that, that God's grace was sufficient for him. That his power, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, through our weakness, God is glorified. Betsy and Corey Tinboom, many of you have probably heard of them if you've read the book, The Hiding Place. I was recently reminded by this, and it a sermon illustration from hillsborough family camp that we went to and it's, a, it's an amazing account while they were suffering with fleas in Ravensbruck concentration camp and they they were there because they were captured for helping to hide jews in nazi germany but they're they're in Ravensbruck concentration camp suffering with fleas And the barracks were just absolutely infested with these fleas. It was horrible. But Betsy was reading the Bible and came to 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. It was hard, but they thanked God even in the dark, nasty barracks. They thanked God for what they had, the women that they were there with, and even the infestation of the fleas and Corey told Betsy, there's, just, there's no way that I can thank God for fleas, no matter what. And Betsy said, give thanks in all circumstances doesn't mean only in the pleasant circumstances. And so they began holding church services for the other women there. They were not reprimanded night after night. Despite their readings and their worship of the Lord, the guards never came in. They never even opened the doors. They had much freedom in their barracks compared to the other girls that were there. And in her book, The Hiding Place, Corey wrote this about the situation. She said, one evening I got back into the barracks late from wood gathering. A light snow lay on the ground and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going in each room. Betsy was waiting for me as always, so that we could wait through the food line together, and her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we've never understood why we had so much freedom in this big room, she said. Well, tonight I found out. Earlier that afternoon, she said there had been confusion in her knitting group about what sock sizes they should have. And they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't even step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? It was because of the fleas. See, in a a place of unimaginable suffering, unthinkable evils, everything that you've probably ever heard of that was horrible, that could be done to a young girl was happening in that concentration camp. And the guards left them alone because of the fleece. So, the very thing you suffer from, God will use it to bring glory to Him. Perhaps, like the blind man, like Paul, you suffer. You're going through your own difficulty, your own hardship in life. So that the works of God might be displayed in you. So when we're overwhelmed by an ailment, a disease, or suffering, take heart. Christ sees you. He notices you. He he has a plan for you. This man was born blind for this moment so that all who read about this miracle, who all who have heard about this account since the day that it happened would realize that like this blind man, we need the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Verses 6 through 12 say, After saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with saliva, and he put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and he washed and he came home seen. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? They asked. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Salome and wash And so I went and I washed and then I could see, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. It was common for Christ to require some kind of test or to incorporate a command within the course of a miracle to develop the person's faith. And we've seen this as we studied through the miracles that we've looked at so far. In this count with the the water to grape juice, he had servants go and fill the jars In the situation with the royal official's son, he healed the man, and he had to travel home first, didn't he, before he could see the result of the miracle. The disciples had to first collect and bring to Jesus what they had before Christ could feed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves. And in this account, Jesus uses mud. Why, Why use this? Why spit on the ground and... Put this on this man's eyes. He could have just spoken it and it would have happened. We're not told why he did this, but we do have a couple of other situations in scripture in Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8 where he restored a deaf and a mute man using his saliva. He spit on a blind man's eyes and healed him. But on this occasion, making mud and putting it on the man's eyes. Why? It just seems gross, doesn't it? None of us are going to want to have someone else's spit mixed with mud on our eyes. But it shows us something about the humble spirit of the man, that he was willing to submit to that and allow Christ to do it. And it certainly got everyone else's attention, didn't it? Jesus gives the command, and he expects it to be obeyed. What would have happened if the man would have said to Jesus, Why well, do I don't have to go to the pool of It's not really necessary, is it? And in fact, I'm blind. How am I going to get there? somebody going to lead me there? and What's going to happen? Jesus wanted to see if the man had the faith to do what he was asking. In fact, he wouldn't have been healed. Until he obeyed. Biblical obedience is immediately, exactly, without challenge or complaint. Immediately, exactly, without challenge or complaint. And today we can be just like the blind man in a spiritual sense if we don't obey God's word the way that he expects us to to obey it. Many today want salvation... Like Naaman who went and washed in the Jordan River. Many want their sins forgiven. They want to be cleansed. They want to, they want to be washed clean. But they want to question. And they, they don't want to do exactly what God has asked them to do in His Word. If Naaman wouldn't have gone and washed in the Jordan, and when went to some other river, would he have been cleansed of his leprosy? No. If he would have went and washed in the Jordan four or five or six times, would he have been cleansed? No. Because the the command was, go to the Jordan River, dip yourself seven times, then you will be cleansed. Immediately, exactly, without challenge or complaint. And just like the blind man was told to go and wash and came home seeing So we, too, are told to wash in the waters of baptism, to have our sins forgiven and go on our way rejoicing. Let us not be spiritually blind to his truths. Verse 13 through 23 says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Here we go again. Jesus doing something on the Sabbath. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. And So there's this dispute that arises. Some of the Pharisees still holding to their tradition, bring up the fact that he did this on a Sabbath day. How dare you cure this man of his blindness on a Sabbath day? Others were saying, there is no way this miracle could have been done. This man, born blind, was the only one who told the truth. And he said, he's a prophet. And what blatant fact were both groups ignoring? What's what's going on here? What has just happened? Everyone should be rejoicing. One side's worried about... Jesus performing the miracle on the Sabbath and the other ones are looking and saying there's no way this miracle could have been done by a sinner so he's he can't be a sinner they're arguing back and forth with this dispute but what are they ignoring the man has received his sight someone born blind can now see his life is changed forever They were looking past the obvious reason to rejoice, more worried about themselves. And it's tempting to pass over this quickly, but we have to consider the complexity of this miracle. The eye is an amazing organ. Dr. David Minton explains it this way. The human brain consists of approximately 12 billion cells, forming 120 trillion interconnections, the light-sensitive retina of the eye, which is really part of the brain, contains over 10 million photoreceptor cells. These cells capture the light pattern formed by the lens to convert into a complex electrical signal, which are then sent to a special area of the brain, where they're transformed into the sensation we, cause, we call vision. And in an article in Byte magazine, John Stevens compares the signal processing ability of the cells in the retina with that of the most sophisticated computer designed by man, the Cray supercomputer. While today's digital hardware is extremely impressive, it's clear that the human retina's real-time performance goes unchallenged. To simulate 10 milliseconds, which is one hundredth of a second, of the complete processing of even a single nerve cell from one retina would require the solution of about 500 simultaneous nonlinear differential equations 100 times and it would take at least several minutes of processing time on a Cray supercomputer keeping in mind that there are 10 million or more of these kind of cells interacting with each other in complex ways. It would take a minimum of 100 years of supercomputing time to simulate what takes place in your eye many times every second. The fact that this man was healed, could now see, should just boggle our mind, blow our mind. Jesus was able to do this because he's the creator of the eye. Verses 24 through 34 say, A second time they summoned the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, We know this man's a sinner, He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and I now see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, you're his fellow, this fellow's disciple. We're Moses's. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Is overwhelming. And John wants us to to read this conversation to get an idea of just how steeped they were in their pride. They're not able to find fault in Christ or in the man. And the blind man says, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I can't read his heart like you seem to be able to. But I do know I was blind and now I can see. The truth was plain. And it was clear. Their problem was that they had blindness that was worse than physical blindness. It's a blindness that we have to be very careful that we too don't have. Spiritual blindness. By refusing to acknowledge Christ, the Son of God, as the one who healed this man, proves they had much more serious form of blindness than the physical darkness that the man had experienced for decades. This man was thrown out, they said. This means he was thrown out of the synagogue. He could no longer fellowship with his fellow Jews, never be allowed to back in to have worship privileges, to have prayer privileges. The community would have shunned him. Verse 35-41 through 41 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this. And they asked, what, are we blind too? Like this. Yeah. Jesus, That's what Jesus was thinking. yeah. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be, be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. So here we finally find out why Jesus performed this miracle with this man at this time. Certainly was to heal the man. But ultimately, more importantly, was to expose the arrogance of the Pharisees. To expose the, the arrogance and the pridefulness that we too sometimes suffer, in our own, suffer with in our own lives. We need to get rid of it. Jesus makes sure that the man gets to see Him with his new eyes. To see his Lord and Savior. And he worships Jesus. And Christ accepts his worship proving that He is the divine Son of God. And the Pharisees dig their heels in. They have a blindness far worse than this man ever had experienced. And we sit back and we wonder, how could anyone have crucified Jesus? He did nothing in his entire life except help others deny himself to take care of the needs of other people. He was never militant, never raised up an army, he was never combative, yet the Jewish leaders were constantly against him because they had hardened their hearts to the truth. Their their pride had closed their minds to anything else than their version of the truth, and in doing so, they rejected the only one who could save their, their very soul. And like the Pharisees in this account, there are still many today who are lost, who remain outside of Christ, who remain in their sin because they refuse to accept the plain truth found in God's Word. And what was the difference in the response of the man born blind and the Pharisees? Humility. They were willing to humble themselves. He he was willing to humble himself before the Savior of the world. they would have simply repented of their pride, they would have found salvation in Him. And this is what it takes for every person who wants to be saved. To deny themselves, humble themselves, and seek the Lord. And that's the attitude we are to maintain as we follow Christ. Every day we look to God and we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. We look inwardly at ourselves and the things that we need to work on. And outwardly, we see people and have compassion on them like Jesus did. God has given us the physical sight. If you've been blessed with two marvelous eyes to see other people like Jesus did. And to share the saving message of the Son of God with them. In verse 4 of our text, Jesus said, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. That's just as true today as it was in the first century. There's a sense in which the night is falling on each one of our lives. Every day we're one step closer to eternity. We don't know how much longer we're going to have. Whether we have just today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week purpose today to start a new life in Him. Don't let any prideful notion, any prideful pursuit, don't let any line of work, don't let family members, don't let anything get in your way of noticing the Son of God and seeing Him for what He truly is. This morning, as we do every Sunday, the guys are going to come forward we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. This is a great time to respond to the gospel if you believe in Christ. If you need to repent of your sin, you say, I'm ready to, to turn away from the life I've been living and go the way that God wants me to live. I'm willing to confess him as the son of God, as this blind man did, and worship him. And I'm willing to be obedient immediately, exactly, without challenge and complaint. I'm willing to get into the waters of that baptistry, like God has said. Because that's where, I understand, that's where my sins are forgiven. And I come up out of there, as the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 6, a new creature in Christ. And we're promised the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. If you need to make that decision, to be obedient to the gospel, right now is an excellent time to do it. (music) Oh, <music> oh,